something to help us with all of that. That's Timothy Snyder, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Timothy Snyder on the Ukraine war and the future of democracy. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is an unambiguous violation of the UN Charter and international law. NATO's expansion eastward up to Russia's borders was seen by Moscow as an existential threat, thus prompting its attack. The war continues with no end in sight. The Ukrainian foreign minister says, quote, Every war ends in a diplomatic way. Every war ends at the negotiating table, unquote. That's no doubt true, but Kiev is imposing preconditions for talks that are highly unlikely to be accepted by Russia. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the peace group Code Pink, says, quote, The White House and Congress are fueling this war with a steady stream of weapons instead of pushing for talks to end the conflict. We need, she says, negotiations, not escalation. To talk about the Ukraine war and the future of democracy is Timothy Snyder. He's Richard C. Levin, professor of history at Yale and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria. He's the author of many books, including Our Malady and On Tyranny. He spoke at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And now, Timothy Snyder. So I've been asked to speak about the war in Ukraine and the future of democracy. But I think that this can only be sensibly done if we start from the assumption that democracy is not a thing that has a future or doesn't have a future. Democracy is a set of human relationships which only exist insofar as humans name them and value them. And as we move into a world where we expect that the human stands in the corner and the machines are going to do the work, we're also moving into a world which is ever less democratic. Um, so I, I'm taking seriously the idea of the future of democracy. It can sound like it's, it can sound a little bit cliched, like, oh, the future of democracy, surely democracy is going to be around in the future. I'm going to take this seriously in a couple of ways. One, one, of, the, one of these ways is uh, the obvious way. Does democracy have a future, which I think is an open question. The odds are against it, I think, at the moment. But the way that I want to take even more seriously, or I think the, the more interesting question is, do we have a future without democracy? Do we, as a, not just as a country, I mean, we belong to different countries, I assume, but do we as a species have a future without democracy? Because the, there's, there's this interesting you know, tendency, especially in the U.S., um, to say, well, you have to make these terrible choices between freedom and security, Right? You've got to be tough. You have to understand the way that life really is. And sometimes you just have to give up your freedom because there, there are these considerations of security. Like there are examples where it's true, but it's generally not true. When I was in Ukraine, I was struck by many of the things that um, President Zelensky said. But one of the things he stressed, which I think is very important, is that when you liberate a village, people can be more free and more secure at the same time. And that goes for a lot of situations. If you have health care you are both more free and more secure at the same time. If global warming were removed from all of our minds, removed from reality, we would be more free 
and more secure. Freedom and security generally work together. So what I'm trying to suggest is that if we're going to get out of the things that most oppress us, like the future of global warming that I take it many of us are afraid of, I think it's going to be as in democracies. One reason I think that, don't worry, this is all going to come down. Those of you who are worried about whether I'm going to talk about Ukraine, I am. It's going to, it's going to sneak up on you and it's going to hit you before you know it. So the, the people who are in favor of global warming, and there are lots of them, tend to be the oligarchs. The people who tend to deny, when I say in favor of, I mean deny, him and haw, whatever, they actually love it. The people who are in favor of global warming also tend to be the people who are against democracy. Vast majorities, including in this country, when polled, believe that global warming is true and want to do something about it. So if we were more democratic, we would be handling global warming better than we do right now, nationally and internationally. The people who, who, who make this difficult are a category of people that I'm going to call hydrocarbon oligarchs or more, perhaps more concisely, fossil oligarchs. Now, watch this. I'm not going to talk about Ukraine. So who is, the, who is the most important hydrocarbon oligarch in the world? That's, I'm, not, I'm now asking. Right, right. So the richest person in the world is also the most important hydrocarbon oligarch in the world, is also the person who's leading this conflict, which is the, the most destructive conflict we've had in decades with the potential to do many awful things in addition to the awful things that have already happened. This regime run by this fossil oligarch, this hydrocarbon oligarch, could not exist without the hydrocarbons. The whole structure of the regime is based upon hydrocarbons. The hydrocarbons can be weaponized abroad, as they are against Ukraine and indirectly against Europe at the moment, but also the entire vertical structure of the Russian regime, where foreign payments that come in because of the export of hydrocarbons are used to make sure that people are directly dependent upon the central government, all of that is only possible because of hydrocarbons. So the entire regime rests upon that. Where does this lead you? So the thing about hydrocarbon oligarchs, they tend to be in favor of global warming. But there's a, there's a broader problem here, which has to do with, with oligarchs. So I'm, try, I'm, I'm talking about Ukraine, but I'm trying to talk about Ukraine in such a way that we can understand that the problems in Ukraine are very often intensifications or forecasts of problems which are true for the rest of the world, right? That Ukraine is not some isolated thing where you can say, oh, that's a faraway country, you know, of which we know little. That Ukraine is actually a kind of center, a, sh- a showplace um, for, you know, a testing ground, if you like, for some of the things that will happen or are happening around the world. One of the things that happens with oligarchy is lies. Big lies. This is a, this is a phenomenon that's been known since Plato. There are going to be others. There's a long tradition from Plato down through George Orwell of, of, of explaining how oligarchy warps conversations. Right. It makes the notion of freedom of speech, as we, as we take it for granted, kind of, kind of ridiculous. Um, Russia is an, abs- is an absurdly extreme example of this. It's, it's unusual for one person to have command of all of the television networks and the television networks to all say the same thing. That is admittedly an extreme example. Right? It's unusual to have the kind of radical forms of censorship which block out independent media the way one has in Russia. Nevertheless, Russia provides a kind of ideal type and we are moving in that direction. In general, the world is moving in that direction. We're inundated by what we think of as information, but which is only information in the digital sense. There are ever, few, ever fewer human reporters who are actually chasing down the facts in this country, right? So we talk about the news all the time, but we don't produce it. What the oligarchs do, aside from suppressing the voices of others or warping the conversation in general, is they fill up the discourse with crazy ideas about the future. 
in general, the ideas that we have to spend a lot of time on, which have to do with the future, are both anti-democratic and nuts. Like for the example that, you know, you're going to live forever. These are American examples that, you know, some of us are going to live forever or you're going to go to Mars where you're going to live forever. These things are not going to help us survive um, and they're not, going to, they're not going to help democracy survive. So Putin, as an oligarch, also has a crazy idea. He is, uh, he is like other oligarchs. He's actually been in touch with one of our oligarchs very recently. Um, <laughs> but he, like other oligarchs, he has his idee fix which are generally anti-democratic and wacky. And his is that the country next to him doesn't exist. So we can look at all of this in regional terms. We can think of this as some kind of regional specificity that it all comes down. I'm very happy to talk about this. But it all comes down to you know, disagreements about Kiev and Rus a thousand years ago. But it doesn't really. What it, all, what it comes down to is the capacity of someone who is the richest person in the world, commanding a media regime and commanding a state, to bring his absolutely indefensible ideas into some kind of reality by starting a war. The idea that Ukraine is not a real place, that Ukrainians are not a real people, that Ukraine doesn't have a history, is wacky the same way that we're going like, to save ourselves from global warming by going to Mars is wacky. It's the kind of thing that you can get yourself to believe if no one tells you the truth, it's the kind of thing you get yourself to believe if nobody is willing to challenge you. It's the kind of thing that you can believe if maybe you're good at some things but not good at everything, which is a general description of oligarchs and the, and the, the way that they, the role that they play in our public conversation. This war is itself very serious, and I will talk about how it's serious, but the premise upon which it is based, that Ukraine is not a real people, that Ukraine is not a real country, that's not serious. That's just idiotic. It's like, it's like, you know, there's, there's like a saying that like you have to be a PhD to be that stupid. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. But there's, there's actually a higher level of this, which is that you have to have, you know, $20 billion to be that stupid. And Mr. Putin has attained that. So the idea that Ukraine isn't really a country or the Ukrainians aren't really a people, it's not that that's wrong. It's not even wrong. Like it's a total misunderstanding of the way history works. He's, what, what Mr. Putin is doing is that he's saying... I understand the past. His idea about the past is he can see a straight line from a thousand years ago where human agency doesn't matter, where contingency is, is, is entirely excluded, and where the things that he happens to think um, are, abs are absolutely true. And in this scheme, and now, we're, and now we're moving more directly to the war, it's very easy to say that other things don't exist. So if, if, um, if I'm allowed to say Russia has always been there, Right? And I know what Russia always has been. And Russia has always included these territories of Ukraine. Well, if I'm allowed to say that and believe it, what follows from that is that the things that seem to be Ukraine are not real. They're not really part of history. They're artificial. They're exotic. They're corrupt. They shouldn't really be in the picture. And from that logic, it follows that I have the right to eliminate them, first rhetorically and then physically. And that's the way that Ukraine is actually talked about. The things, so from Putin's point of view, the things that he believes in are real, right? They make very little contact with reality, which means that reality has to change. That's what follows from this. So Ukraine as a society, it's defined as being not real. It's just about the Poles or the Habsburgs or the Germans or the European Union or the Jews or the Americans or whoever at the moment is going to be given, is going to be named as the exotic external force which created this thing, right? That's what you say. And that means I have to get rid of all the people in Ukraine who believe in this idea. 
But once you start doing that, then you slowly realize that actually it's quite a few people or actually it's pretty much the entire country. So this oligarchical whimsy, right, because I refuse to dignify it by giving it like any more credibility than it is, um, this oligarchical whimsy can help us to understand the initiation of the war. It can also help us to understand certain global features of this war. The fact that this war is being principally led by a hydrocarbon oligarch um, in a moment of oligarchical whimsy helps us to, to, to make sense of some of the things which, again, might just seem like regional catastrophes or you know, accidents relating to this war. For example, the racial struggle for resources. So, so Putin, like many people on the far right, is obsessed by the idea of a democratic cri- demographic crisis. He doesn't care about a democratic crisis, about a demographic crisis, um, this thing that goes by the name of replacement theory, that there are too many people who are not like us and so on. And so the way that the war is being fought, and this sometimes escapes attention, is perhaps less for territory and more, and more for people. So the way that the Russians are fighting this war is that they are sending in their, the men from their own indigenous groups to be killed in Ukraine. And they're exporting back into Russia fertile women and children who they see as candidates for Russification, if not in this generation, then in the future, right? So, and they have, they have, by their own count, they have brought into the Russian Federation more than four million Ukrainian citizens, which is roughly one-tenth of the population of the country. So that is, that is a genocidal act on um, a self-confessed one on, on a very large scale. Or the, the world food crisis, because Putin is a hydrocarbon oligarch carrying out this kind of war, he's giving us a sort of preview of what the wars for resources will look like in the future if we let global warming continue. So by, by fighting this war, by, by occupying the Black Sea, by blocking the trade from Ukraine, by executing Ukrainian agribusiness executives, by blowing up tanks filled with sunflower oil, as happened a couple of days ago, but, but chiefly by making the export of food very difficult, um, Russia is starving the world, which is bad enough, but it's also a preview of the kind of war that we can expect later on. If we start from this idea that um, that, that this war has to do with a moment of oligarchical whimsy, uh, which has very little contact from reality. You can understand its origins, its features, but also something about the course of the war and its difficulties from the Russian point of view. So this, has not been, this war has not been a success for Russia. This war has not gone well at all from the point of view of Russia. It also hasn't gone well at all from the point of view of the people who thought that they knew what was going to happen. That's something I'm going to return to. We're not going to escape blameless here. From the point of view of Russia, um, the idea is to destroy all of Ukrainians, right? That's the premise. But then as you move into the war, as you move into the country, as time passes, there turn out to be far more Ukrainians than you thought. Russia's operational assumption at the beginning was that there were just a few thousand Ukrainians. It was like a thin crust a thin crust of Jews, like Europeanized individuals, whatever, Americans, gays. It depends on the thinker. It depends on the day of the week. But people who could be, who could be characterized as being somehow from outside. And so we're just going to go, and this is literally the plan. We're going to go in, storm an airport, take Kiev, and we're going to murder them all. And then the rest of the country will just revert to being our people, right? But that didn't work. Right? And it didn't work because Ukrainians resisted. And the more Ukrainians resist, the more the logic comes, we have to kill more of them, ever, ever more of them. That's the way the logic works. But that logic doesn't necessarily lead to, to military victories. So, what we've, so the, the political, the ideological assumption that Ukraine doesn't exist leads to a very flawed military plan. 
which is one of Russia's problems, not the only one, but it also lends to a, a genocide which steadily escalates because the target group of people you have to get rid of has now been extended essentially to the entire population. And this is not just me saying this, this is Russian national television, um, which, you know, if you're not watching it, that's why I'm here to help you out. Um, but, you know, about, about a week ago on Russian national television, a Russian fascist came on and said, the Ukrainians are possessed. This is interesting. They're possessed. So they're not, they don't know who they are. They're really Russians. They don't know who they are. They're possessed. And so we're going to tell them they're possessed. And if they don't accept that they're possessed and, and are really Russians, which is, I mean, let's face it, that's a lot to ask of someone, right? I'm not, I mean, I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> um, but but so but if the, if you don't accept that you're possessed, then I'm going to kill you. And then he goes on to say, we'll kill a million if we have to. We'll kill five million if we have to. We will kill every single Ukrainian if we have to. And and so this is the logic of escalation. If the, the more Ukrainians there are, the more one has to get rid of. Now, this raises what I think is a really interesting question of what it means to exist what it means to exist as a political society and perhaps what it means to exist as a political society that could become democratic. What is that thing that the Russians are running into? What does it mean for society to, to exist? And, and uh, this, is not, this is not at all straightforward. The next point that I want to make, the next big point that I want to make, is that when we make the move to try to define whether society exists or doesn't exist, we are, we're very often doing something which has to do with the imperial character of knowledge. Okay, that might sound a little bit abstract, but it's pretty important because when we start from an imperial position, I'm going to say more about what I mean by that in a second, but when we start from an imperial position and we, we give ourselves the right to say who exists, who doesn't exist, and under what criteria, we are then not only failing to notice some important things about existence, but we're also failing to decode what other people are doing. Okay, I've been very abstract. Let me try to be clearer about this. One example of what I'm talking about is history. Take Crimea. The Crimean Peninsula, a lot of people would probably accept that like there's, Crimea has always been Russia, right? It's always been Russia. It's something certainly that Russians say. But it's the imperial position which allows you to define always and never. The, 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 penin, the Crimean Peninsula actually had a state um, which existed for about 600 years, which is not a short period of time. 200 years, part of the Golden Horde. 400 years as the Crimean Hanat, right? Much longer, incidentally, than any particular Russian state has existed. That state is taken over by the Russian Empire at the end of the 18th century and is renamed, the territory is renamed New Russia. And now the nice thing about being able to say that something is new is that you are thereby obliterating everything which is now defined as old. And so Crimea is always Russia in the sense that you get to say when never and always start. The moment that you inquire a little bit into the history of Crimea, you find, well, there was not only a Tatar state there for hundreds of years, you also say, well, the native, the entire native population, this is something very familiar from American history, of course, the entire indigenous population was deported. The enti- every last person, I mean, it began in the late 18th century, but it was completed in 1944 when every single Crimean Tatar, every man, woman, and child was deported by force in a matter of three days in spring of 1944. Every single person. And so when that's done, then you can say, oh, this was always Russia. <laughs> I don't think Crimea and Ukraine are very different in this respect. The same, this, when you say that Crimea was always Russia, you're in the same mode as when you say Ukraine and Russia were always together. 
The always, if you have the power to define always, that means that you're the one who's in the imperial position. In fact, there are hundreds of years of very interesting political history in Ukraine. Um, most of the territory that's now Ukraine had very little to do with Moscow for most of its existence. But more interestingly, uh, the center of Ukrainian political activity was also defined as New Russia. Very, it's a very powerful idea, right? I get to say something is New Caledonia or New England and, or New Russia. But what's now southern Ukraine, where the fighting is taking place... The, those places had, before they became New Russia, were the site of Ukrainian Cossack political activity for quite a long time. But the moment that you name something as new, that history, that history goes away. These things apply everywhere. So this business of always and never is, of course, very powerful in American history. The moment that I say the founding fathers started something new, I'm exerting the same kind of magical power. Right? The found, there was still a lot of things that happened before the Founding Fathers, right? Like these laws that we have in America which say that the, the, you can't dismiss the reality that the Founding Fathers from nothing started. I, I'm not citing this word for word, but the basic idea is you can't dismiss the reality that the Founding Fathers starting from nothing created the perfect democracy, right? That's the same kind of idea, the power of defining what's always and, and, and what's never. And, these mem- and that's not a joke. Like the mem- memory laws are very closely associated with, associated with conflict, in Russia, it is literally illegal, and you can now be imprisoned for saying the wrong things about certain parts of Russian history. Right? That wave of memory laws has now come to the United States. And without going into the details of what the memory laws say, it's the same basic idea. You're always, you're always removing innocence from yourself. Okay, so what the main point I'm trying to make is that when we think about how these wars start and what it means to exist, one has to be very wary of this business of always and never, because the history is always going to turn out to be much more interesting. The second thing that in this war and in general, I think one ought to be careful about is ethnicity and language. And here's one where Americans, I think, are just hugely guilty. Um, so so we, it's fine for us to be multicultural. That's cool. But if anybody else shows any signs of being multicultural, that's a big problem and our brains immediately break. So, you know, it's cool for us to be, but look at Ukraine. They have two languages. Whoa. <laughs> right? I mean, immediately, like, we're done. We're like, okay, well, wait. If some of them speak Russian, they must be Russians. Or if they speak Ukrainian, they must be nationalists. And if they speak both, then I just don't want to hear anything more about it. Right? And that, and that is, of course, a problem, not with them, but a problem with us. It's a problem with us. It's a problem with, you know, being monolingual. But it's also a problem of thinking, we're a good enough country to be multicultural. But other people, ethnicity is good enough for them. And if they speak Ukrainian, they must be ethnic Ukrainians, whatever that means. And if they speak Russian, they must be ethnic Russians, whatever that means. And the moment you apply this, quote, this quasi-scientific term ethnic to someone, you are saying who they are. As, and it's over. You've categorized them. It's quote-unquote scientific, and it's all done. But that, of course, is not the way that language or identity work. Um, I mean, of course, it's much more important what you say than, I'm speaking English, so I just want to, like, everyone from England who wants, like, I'm not English, right? I mean, this is, like, this is totally obvious. It's totally obvious. The fact that you speak Russian does not make you Russian, right? I also speak Ukrainian. That doesn't make me Ukrainian. I mean, this stuff is, like, mind-bogglingly obvious, and it's only this notion that, like, oh, I have the power to categorize you that makes it seem even at all plausible. So it's much more important what people say than in what language they say it, right? Um, that's, that's the fundamental thing. But we're also we're on interesting territory here because it, we can move towards a more positive argument. The fact, one of the things that's most interesting about Ukrainians, actually, 
and is on display in this war and is generally on display in Ukrainian politics is that almost everybody is bilingual. And that bilingualism allows for forms of expression which any kind of monolingualism does not. It allows for code switching. It allows you to change the language that you're using in different settings and use different languages, deploy different languages for different purposes. But that, you know, remembering that people are bilingual. So if you think they're bilingual, therefore you're not sure who they are, okay, that means that you're imprisoned by this paradigm of ethnicity and language. But if you recognize that bilingualism maybe allows them to do things that you can't do if you're not bilingual, then you're closer, I think, to the truth of, of what it means to exist as a society. Because what, what the Ukrainians are doing in this war really does depend upon playing with language. The way that they're messing with the Russians depends upon them knowing Russian. And the way that they've jumped into American pop culture and they've mobilized American pop culture in their own communications shows a general capacity to mess around with other people's languages. They're not as good with it as they are with the Russians, but they're surprisingly good at it. And that partly has to do with the habit of code switching and having a certain kind of distance on on language. So it's not that language defines you. It's more that what you do with language defines um, defines who you want to be seen as as being. So I'm now trying to move towards a more positive example of what it means to exist, um, what it means to exist as a society. And I now want to say a word about what it means for Ukraine to exist um, and then maybe more broadly about what it means for a democracy to have a chance or for democracy to have a future. So it seems to me that some of the most important characteristics of Ukrainian social existence or national existence now um, have to do with uh, recent experiences which one can name. So uh, independence in 1991, a defense of democracy in 2004-2005, a defense of a European choice in 2014, and the war of 2022 itself. In other words, more important for existing are the things that you've done in the last 30 years, maybe, than the things that might or might not have happened in the last thousand. In 2014, which was the time of the Maidan, which were major protests in Ukraine, and in 2022, the obvious thing that one sees in Ukraine, which one sees less of here and much less of in Russia, is this mysterious beast civil society. So civil society is an old category and it can sound, it can sound a bit abstract, but what I mean by civil society is, the, is people leaning forward into forms of cooperation which have political consequences. So the assumption that you're going to take responsibility along with other people for doing something important. This, was, this has been hugely important during the war because the, it's not that the Ukrainian state is matched up against the Russian state. It's that the Ukrainian state plus Ukrainian civil society is matched up against parts of the Russian state. And by civil society, I mean, it's, it's something, if you, everybody I know in Ukraine who's not in the armed forces spends a lot of time driving a van. That's what you have to think of. You have to think a bunch of people who figure out like where what is needed, raise the money, collect those things, and then drive to that part of the front or drive to the city that was just bombed. Like when you're thinking, when you're looking at the pictures of Kiev and you're asking yourself, okay, or any city, Chernihiv, any cities that have been bombed, and you ask yourself, okay, how much is, how do the Ukrainians repair so much so quickly? Some of it's the state, but a lot of it is that people come and try 
to help. So Chernihiv, I was in Chernihiv. It's a, an ancient city, 7th century probably, just north of Kiev. And I was in villages and suburbs around it too. And people's houses, which had been shelled by the Russians as they were besieging the city, are all, very often partly repaired. And why are they partly repaired? It's because the neighbors came and they did the things that they knew how to do, which is striking. Also, sometimes it's people from Kiev coming. That's all that's meant by civil society. It's like leaning forward to do the things that you can do. You're listening to Timothy Snyder on the Ukraine war and the future of democracy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. Ukraine exists, you know, I can talk about history if people want, but Ukraine exists because of experience, because of civil society. It also exists because of democracy. Um, Democracy in the very simple sense of choosing rulers. There is a longer tradition of this in Ukraine, but the last 30, in the last 30 years, Ukrainians have successfully defended their basic right to choose their rulers, their presidents at least, by direct election which direct election is something that we don't have in the United States. And it's unclear, by the way, that we'll be able to even to defend the kind of indirect election of presidents that we have that could fold in the next eight years or less. So Ukrainians have this, like, if you talk to Ukrainians about democracy, and again, I'm happy to be corrected, but the direct election of the president, which has been defended um, over and over again, is also being defended now, I think is something very, is something very important. And, and with that is the, is the tradition of the peaceful exchange of power. This makes Ukraine very different from Russia, where this has not happened. Um, that you lose an election, you walk away, and the next guy comes in. When, when Zelensky won the election, the guy before him walked away. And this very, not that they like each other or that everything is entirely kosher and honky-dory between them, no, but that you have a succession of power um, which actually works. This has to do with national existence. But most of all, and this is something that struck me um, with the president, but pretty much with everybody that I, that I talked to the last time I was in Ukraine, I think Ukraine exists largely in a notion of freedom which has to do with the future, which I think is very important to democracy. So look, I've gotten back to the word in the title, the future. I think Ukraine largely exists because of the future. When people talk about the war, they're not just talking about something which has to end. They're talking about something which got in the way of the future. And when people talk about their notion of freedom, it isn't just freedom from the Russians, like freedom from this terrible occupation. It's also freedom to do, like to realize the plans and projects that we had for the future. That notion of freedom, which, ins- which insists that there is a future, right, that politics is fundamentally about the future, I think that's one of the ways that, that Ukraine actually exists. Now, it's not something that you can point to. It's not, you know, it's not, ob- it's not quote unquote objective in the way that these other things are. But I think that it's very important. And it's now moving me towards this definition, which I wanted to try to give, of what it means to exist as a nation or what it might mean to exist as, as a democracy. I think a nation exists largely in a future, or in a common conversation about what the future might be. And this raises the question, I'm going to turn things around a little bit, Um, this raises the question of whether Russia exists. In our sort of baseline American, you know, imperial framework that we fall back to when we're stressed, Russia is, of course, a real country. It's a great power. Didn't we have a Cold War with Russia? Ukraine, we're not so sure. But Russia, that must be okay. I'm not. I'm not saying the Russian Federation doesn't exist as a state, but as a nation. 
I think that's really been called into question, at least in the sense that I'm talking about. The, the president of Russia never talks about the future. There is no vision of a Russian future. The dominant political thinkers in Russia don't talk about the future. They talk about a politics of us and them. They talk about the past. They talk about being a great power. But they, they don't talk about the future, almost to the point of taboo. And when one flips the, 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 the view a little bit and asks if Russia exists as a nation, you then can ask related empirical questions. And I'd be interested if anyone can think of answers to these. But is there an example of a war fought in the name of a nation where more members of that nation have fled abroad in order not to fight in it? That strikes me as really significant. In early 2022, late 2021 even, Ukrainian men were leaving their jobs around Europe and they were going to Ukraine on the assumption that they were going to have to fight. When Russians have to fight, when they're mobilized, they leave the country. On a very large, not all of them, but on a very large scale. What does that say about the imagined future of a country, right, when something like that happens? Um, Another empirical question, is there another situation where so quickly in a war, a country has had to empty its prisons in order to take the convicts to the front and have them fight and die? I can't think of another example like that. And that's what the the Russian army, in its defensive position in Ukraine right now, the lines are made up of first prisoners, second recently mobilized people, and then what remains of the regular army is, is the third line. I can't think of very good precedents for that, but those are things which call into question um, the existence of Russia as, as a nation. And when I, when, I, when I think about these arguments overall, I'm drawn to the conclusion, that now I'm shifting from existence to democracy, that the, the arguments for the existence of Russia very much depend upon the arguments for the non-existence of Ukraine. That it's in naming Ukraine as not existing that we prove that Russia does exist. And if that's true, that would be a very significant problem, I think, for Russia for the very basic reason that Ukraine does exist and is capable of defending its existence. But generally you see you know, where I've gone with this, which is that if we think about the quote-unquote like objective factors, like if we say, oh, like, is there a language? Well, sure, there's a Russian language. I mean, does it have an ancient history? Well, it claims to. Um, you know, then, uh, then we think, well, of course, like Russia, Russia exists. But if we shift the definition of political existence to something else, like the ability to think of a future or the ability to take risks, the willingness to take risks, then the existence starts to become, I think, a lot hazier. Okay, one, one important thing here. That I forgot to say. If my existence, political existence, is depends upon the denial of your existence, there's a name for that kind of politics. The name for that kind of politics is fascism. Fascism is a politics of, of us and them, where I define my us by defining who the them is. Carl Schmitt, the most intelligent political theorist of Nazism, makes this very clear in his writings. Um, politics begins with naming the enemy. And that removes the very difficult question of saying who you are, which is a difficult question, because it turns out, I, I believe, it's impossible to say who you are with these objective things. You can only say who you are by making some kind of commitment, taking some kind of risk, risking to advance some vision of the future, right? But you can skip all of that. You can make it much easier on yourself if you just define who the enemy is, right? So if Russia exists by virtue of negating the existence of its neighbor, that is a politics of us and them, which is a fascist politics. Okay, but I don't mean for this to be 
all about Russia and Ukraine, as I keep saying, I actually mean for this to be deeply about us. I want to end by inquiring about where we got things wrong or why our own, what our own sense of the objective factors was such that our, we could lose track of democracy in this country, as I believe we have done, um, but also so that we could misanalyze Ukraine and, and Russia. And what I want to say here, and this is the last argument, what I want to say here is that the, the moment 1991, when Russia and Ukraine became independent countries, um, when Russia, by the way, brought about the end of the Soviet Union, there are lots of funny rumors about now about who brought about the end of the Soviet Union. I was there at the time, and it was American policy to keep the Soviet Union going. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was Boris Yeltsin who brought about the end of the Soviet Union. Russia took itself out of the Soviet Union, um, and that's how the thing came to an end. But that's just a parenthesis. That 1991, the moment when Ukraine becomes an independent country, Russia becomes an independent country, is also the beginning of, this, of, of our story. That's my American hour an American story about objective factors, an American story about how objective factors, outside structures, um, abstract concepts brought about democracy. What are those concepts? What are those abstractions? What are those structural factors? The structural factors, and this is going to sound really familiar, is the idea that there are no alternatives, right? There are no alternatives. The world is just such that there are no alternatives to democracy, and it's therefore it's the absence of other things which is going to lead to democracy. Now, imagine you're in a relationship and you say to the person that you care about, well, you know what? Like, I'm as good as it gets. There are no alternatives. Like, that relationship is not going to last very long, right? Because the person you're talking to is going to find someone who has much better pickup lines than that. Right? So it's a little bit like, with demo- so with democracy, if you say... There are no alternatives. First of all, it's obviously wrong. There are plenty of alternatives. But it's worse than that. When you say that there are no alternatives to democracy, you are directly contradicting what democracy means. When you say there are no alternatives, the structural factors are going to bring it about, what you're saying is the people don't matter. And if the people don't matter, then it's not democracy. It can't be Democracy, something which is brought to you cannot be democracy, right? It can't be. They, I mean, because as we've all, you know, as you all very well understand, talking to the young people now, the structural factors don't work in your favor. That's not how it goes at all. Democracy and freedom have to be worked against the structural factors, you know, with knowledge of what the structural factors are. Democracy and freedom have to be human undertakings based upon some, based upon some kind of ethical commitment. The moment that you say it's the structural factors, you are, you're, you're, you're losing the habit of struggle. You're losing the consciousness that any of this is a struggle. And you're abandoning ethics. Because if you're saying the objective world as it is objectively brings democracy, then you're abandoning the entire moral part of the world. You're abandoning ethics entirely. It's all gone. So the structural factors, it's empirically wrong. So what were the structural factors? The structural factors, aside from alternatives, this other structural factor was capitalism. Capitalism is supposed to bring democracy. But, you know, I'll make this very quick. Russia's capitalist, China's capitalist. There are a lot of countries that are capitalist. It's been a great century for capitalism. It's been a bad century for democracy. Happy to talk about the details, but that's the way it basically looks. Um, The idea that capitalism 
is going to bring democracy, just like any structural factor is going to bring democracy, means that it's not the people. And the structural factors then become the things which are sacred. If you think that the structural factors have to bring about democracy, that there aren't any alternatives, you lose the ability to think about alternative futures. Good ones, bad ones, whatever. If there's only one possible future, capitalism brings democracy, then you don't, why are you going to be thinking about all the other possible futures? There's only, there's only one. And if you lose that capacity to think about multiple futures, then you lose the capacity to be a democratic person. Because a democratic person is someone who can envision multiple possible futures and try to make some of them real in, in the world. Okay, so I want to now just bring this up to the moment when this war starts. In February of this year, I'm going to make this personal because I think it works best that way. In February of this year, I did an interview for 60 Minutes in the week before the war was going to start. And they, they asked me a bunch of questions, but the thing they kept returning to was, is, is Zelensky going to flee? And I said, no, he's not going to flee. Um, and my, my analysis for what it was worth was, I said, he's a little guy who's used to staying up to big guys. He's not going to flee. He's going to stick. Um, and... Um, then you know, much laughter ensued. Like they made me record it multiple times, like to like get their laughter off the shot. Like much laughter ensued, much mockery on social media. Then ensued. There was a class at Yale um, where one of my colleagues brought in Obama security advisors and Trump security advisors on the screens, and he replayed this clip from 60 Minutes. And they were like you know professional enough not to laugh at me, but they said, Professor, you know, Professor Snyder, with all due respect to your historical achievements and so on, he's going to run. He's going to run. They all said he was going to run. No exceptions. No exceptions. Why was everyone so sure of that? Right? I think I know why. I mean, like, not to be too ad personam, but, you know, it's because they would have all run. Um, but, 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 but to make, a more, to make a more structural point, it's this. If you think democracy is about the structural factors and the structural factors turn against you, what are you going to do? You're going to run. Because there's nothing in the world except those structural factors. And writ large, that is what has happened to us. The structural factors have turned against us, or maybe they were never really on our side in the first place. And so then what do you do? Right? Then what do you do? You adapt, you normalize, you just, you just go along. And when, you know, when an acute crisis appears, as with, as with Russia invading Ukraine... It simply doesn't occur to people. I mean, I'm sure it would occur to some of you, but it doesn't occur to people in general that you might actually do something, right? It doesn't occur to you that you might actually just stick. Because if you think it's all about structural factors locally, well, you know, here's this Russian-speaking guy, you know, in his country that Russia says is Russia, and why would he, why would he say anything else? Well, because locally it's not about the structural factors, and looking at it globally, well, he's a smaller country facing a bigger country with what's supposed to be a much better army. How could he possibly stay? All the larger factors say he should go, but he didn't, right? He didn't. And the fact that he didn't go, the fact that Ukrainians chose to fought, to fight, reminds us of something essential about both social existence and democracy, which is that it depends upon working against the larger conditions. It depends upon injecting ethical commitments, taking corporeal risk. One little point about this. So a few days after that, so obviously, as you all know, Zelensky stayed, the Ukrainians fought, and they are, they are now defeating the Russian army. 
which pretty much no one thought was possible. You know, I've been comparing America and Russia a little bit, and I'll just put, make this final point. The analysis in Washington was exactly the same as the analysis in Moscow. Everyone thought the Ukrainians would be done in three days. I was writing, I was publishing articles in February about Ukraine, and my friends who were connected said, Tim, stop publishing this stuff because in three days you're going to look like an idiot. That was what people thought was the wisdom in both Washington and in Moscow. Three days. And my view is that fundamentally we were neglecting the same thing, right? We were neglecting the sense in which Ukraine actually exists or the sense in which Ukraine is actually a democracy. But the thing I wanted to add is about free speech. So on campuses, there's a lot of talk about free speech. There's a lot of talk about free speech on campuses. I'm going to give you an example of what I think free speech actually is. When a couple of days into the war, Zelensky comes out of the administrative building. Uh, it's the evening. There are, there are bombs are still falling on Kiev. There are assassins in Kiev who are tasked to kill him personally. He comes out of the building. He takes out his phone and he says, "President Sut, the president is here." Right, and then he goes to his crew and like they all, they're all there. Right, and why is that so important? Why, like, why is that? Well, first of all, he's telling the truth. That's important. But secondly, he, and he's denying Russian propaganda because the Russians had invaded. And of course, the thing they said is Zelensky fled, the government fled, it's all over. So he's denying Russian propaganda. But there's something more fundamental here, I think, which is, is essential to freedom of speech, which is that it isn't just that you speak the truth. It's that you speak the truth to power, taking a risk. That's what freedom of speech is actually for. The long argument for freedom of speech, which begins with Euripides, says that freedom of speech is there to, in order to speak truth to power, taking bodily risk. So yes, you can come to campus and you can say obnoxious things, and then when people criticize you, you can say, it's my freedom of speech. But that doesn't make you a defender of freedom of speech. It just makes you a coward. You can take advantage of freedom of speech to say all kinds of crazy things to make people upset. Fine. That doesn't make you a champion of the freedom of speech. It makes you a consumer of the freedom of speech, right? What Zelensky did was demonstrate what freedom of speech actually means. And it's a minor example of the larger point of what I'm trying to say, which is that if there's going to be democracy in the future, that democracy is going to have to be defended, not just in the practical sense that, that Ukraine is defending it, but also in a kind of sense of moral commitment, right? Where we say we want a democracy, Democracy really is falling apart in the United States. It really is falling apart in the rest of the world. We could spectate. We could say the larger forces were with us. Now they're against us. What can we do? Right? Or we can actually say, we want to rule. <laughs> it's better than other systems. We, we want to rule. So Ukraine is defending democracy in the obvious senses. It is, it is an imperfect democracy. It's defending itself against the tyranny. It's resisting the precedent that Russia is setting about a tyranny attacking by force a democracy, which is no small thing. That hasn't happened very often recently. What happens in this war will set morale for authoritarians everywhere. But fundamentally, and you've gotten the point, is that if the Ukrainians lose, then what is being lost is this idea that you take risks, right? That democracy is a kind of ethical commitment. And we will have missed our chance to notice this kind of thing, that the people have to, to, have to want to rule. Um, and, that, and that, you know, when rulers say that they represent, which is a war, that's a word that Zelensky was obsessed with and kept returning to, represent, represent, represent. 
that when leaders represent, it's not just that they're representing interests, they're representing also what they think their what, what they think their people is, like what the people are, how they exist, what they what they actually mean. So I think this war does have to be won, not just for the future of democracy. I think this war has to be won so that there can be a future. This war has to be won so that we will be able to see some kind of a future. And that's in a way like that's what this is all about. The question I've tried to say, does democracy have a future, isn't just some kind of rhetorical throwaway. The notion of democracy in the future are very, very closely, very, very closely connected. We have to recognize as a possibility that Ukraine will lose this war. We have to recognize as a possibility that that democracy will fail in this country, which I think is a very proximate possibility. We have to recognize those possibilities. We also have to be able to see better possibilities. Ukraine can and should win this war. They will win it unless we let them down at this point. Right. That is possible. Um, it didn't seem possible to most people who mattered just a few months ago. But now it's not only possible, it's probable. But it's only probable because people did things which it seemed like the structural factors would have prevented them from doing. That's, that's the basic lesson. So democracy in the future are very closely connected to one another. We have to not only just see that democracy is at risk and that bad and there could, be, there could be undesirable futures, we also have to be able to imagine the desirable ones. Um, and I think Ukraine has done something to help us with all of that. So thanks very much. A few days ago, the president of Tajikistan raised a kind of furore by suggesting that Tajikistan was a country that Russia should respect, which, of course, was a notion that was greeted by wide surprise in the Russian media. And, and, and by the way, that is also a result of this war, that the fact that Ukraine has resisted Russia has made it easier for other people to assert their own sovereignty in various, in various ways. I think, though, there is a difference between the way... The, the specific obsession that Mr. Putin has with Ukraine. I have this idea that like people who are cynical about everything are naive about one thing, and I think he really is naive about Ukraine. I think he has a kind of I think his views about Ukraine are childish. Um, this whole idea that Ukrainians are possessed, it, it actually it rolls back to a form of Christian fascism. Everybody has fascism, you know, but this happens to be Christian fascism, which is at the end of it anti-Semitic. But the, the view is something like. Russia is the only power that's capable of restoring the innocence of the world, and therefore anything Russians do along the anything Russians do, including war and you know destruction, doesn't matter, is justified because it's it's an act of restoration of the world. And people don't understand the special Russian mission; they're possessed. And so, like the liberal West, like the things that we think of, like pluralism and ideas and facts and all that, that's just actually possession. And Ukrainians thinking they're Ukrainian is also it's possession. And I, I raise this because it's, this is actually going on. Like this is actually a not, a not insignificant factor in the Russian political conversation. Um, but it, but the but the cues are not always picked up. So when this guy Gubarov talks about murdering millions of Ukrainians because they're possessed, that's not as far as the, from the mainstream as one might wish that it were. There is a lot more discussion in Russia about Satanism and how people are possessed by devils and therefore than, than one would really like to hear. It's funny because it's religion, but it's like it's by it's religion. It's a kind of self-worship because it's by a bunch of people who never go to church and, you know, their version of, their version of Christianity is, you know, hard to recognize. Um, they talk about geopolitical futures, but I would defend my view by saying that the, the geopolitical part is a device to avoid talking about the future for Russians. 
So Russia gets to be a great power forever is sort of the future. But that version of the future means we're not going to talk to you about you know, poverty in the countryside or you know, massive corruption or any of the other things. We're not going to talk to you about oligarchy, the difficulties of starting a small business. These things we're not going to talk about because we're going to talk about how we're a great power and there's going to be a, a, so that's how it's, that's how it's all connected. I'm actually hopeful. I mean, as I said, you know, as I think the Ukrainians are going to win. It, it's horrible that there's a war, but once there's a war on and it's imperial, and there's an imperial war, that's always a chance for the imperial side to lose. And, uh, and the imperial side should lose. This is not a situation where you can say war is terrible and so therefore like, let's, you know, it doesn't matter who wins. Yeah, war is terrible, but the side who started it should lose. And they should lose in a way which discourages them and people like them from fighting similar wars in the future. So I can't say which way it's going to go, but what I do think is that a lot hangs on who wins. You know, if the Russians had already won, we'd be in a much darker place than we are right now. And like this kind of talk that I just gave would be seem completely otherworldly. Um, the fact that Ukrainians fought and resisted means that we can have these conversations about what is democracy and so on. If the Russians had won, we would all be in the mode of like, oh, well, the authoritarians are better and they're more efficient and they're technocrats and so on. And like, we just have to yield. Um, so a lot hangs on who wins. But I, I, if the Ukrainians win um, and a couple of other things happen, which might happen, I think we could be looking at a world where you will look back at this and we'll say, okay, that was the, that was the last blush of like territorial empire. Because in the long, like in the, I didn't talk much about history here. I talked about the future and ethics and so on. But in the long span of European history, we're at the end of 500 years of empire, I think. And historically speaking, I think this is like one last try at an imperial war. And I think it would be good for the Russians, just as it was good for the French and the Germans and the Portuguese and the Spanish and so on, to lose, imper- to lose their imperial war. And that gives them a chance to try some other form of regime. Thanks. You were just listening to Timothy Snyder on the Ukraine War and the Future of Democracy. Timothy Snyder is professor of history at Yale University. He's the author of many books, including Our Malady and On Tyranny. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Rami Khoury, Sarah Lee Whitson, Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And we have a special series of programs on the Ukraine war, featuring Katrina Vandenhoevel, Ray McGovern, and John Mearsheimer. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Timothy Snyder on the Ukraine War and the Future of Democracy, and for Chris Hedges' book, The Greatest Evil is War, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa.
Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Listeners of the audio ether, you are listening to CJSW. This means you are discerning, intelligent, and compassionate. We know you are here for the music, for the programs created by our knowledgeable, passionate hosts. Maybe, though, you are not aware of our spoken word programs. These programs get created as podcasts by folks who bring the same passion and knowledge that our music hosts bring to the table. Perspective and useful facts abound. The University of Calgary. A place of learning. A place of exploration. A place to grow. In this wonderful institution are three places that are very special. Why are they special, you may wonder? The answers are many, but the most important one is the simplest. To join any of these three special places, you merely have to ask. These special three offer one amazing thing that people can do and that people need. Communication, video, radio, print, NUTV, CJSW, The Gauntlet. All three different, but all three have one thing in common, communication. Do you want to learn new skills? Do you want to put learned skills to work? Do you want to be creative in the making of communication? Do film, music, and writing have importance to you? Does truth matter to you? NUTV, CJSW, and The Gauntlet offer you the opportunity to follow your principles and your dreams. Third floor, Mac Hall. East Side. Just do it. 
It's a life changer. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Broadcasting in Calgary. And on Treaty 7 land. Come to ch- ch- check it out and, and see what it's all about. about. Warning, the next hour may contain some naughty language. Listener discretion is advised. Standing for my niggas ain't never known peace. One time for the times when I had to roll deep. See my eyes on the prize and I had no sleep. Till I fly in the sky, man, I grind and repeat. Ha! Prepared for the hustle. I've been cutting out the people that really gave up the struggle. Cause I'll be out here working the team.